Radio Mano Papachango. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking, y'all. This episode is with uh, Jeff McNary, really interesting dude. Uh, I met down in Costa Rica a few weeks ago. He's the medical director of the Rhythmia Life Enhancement Center or Advancement Center. I keep forgetting. And it doesn't really matter because if you're enhancing your life, you're advancing your life. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, uh, yeah, he, uh, you'll hear his story. Super fascinating dude that grew up in, uh, in LA, uh, sort of bopped around the world, bopped around out to Hawaii, doing lots of interesting work, all very heartfelt stuff. You can see this is a guy who's driven by a sense of, uh, compassion and, um, and curiosity and he's my favorite kind of person. Let's just, you know, cut to the chase. I think it's everybody's favorite kind of person. Everybody who's walking a, a path with heart, as uh, Don Juan said in uh, Journey to Ishlan. I remember reading that book a long time ago. And there's lots of controversy as to whether uh, Carlos Castaneda was making stuff up or to what extent it was made up, to what extent it was uh, factual anthropological work. Um I don't really have an opinion. I, th I think it doesn't really matter to me. I never took those books as uh, anthropological reports. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Carlos Castaneda was a huge best-selling author in the late 60s, very mysterious guy. Nobody really knew who he was, although my friend Stanley met him. Um, and he wrote a series of books I think Journey to Ishlan was the third, and that was my personal favorite. But somewhere in there, the main character, Don Juan, who's a shaman uh, in northern Mexico. By the way, that's, sorry for that sound, that's my computer, not yours. Uh, he um, uh, was, uh, he, Don Juan has this beautiful line about how he says, um, you know, we're walking. It, he says it in Spanish. Um, todos estamos en un camino no importa hacia donde va el camino mientras que es un camino con corazón something like that we're all on a, on a path and it doesn't really matter where the path is going as long as it's a path with heart and uh, yeah Jeff McNary is certainly on a path with heart and uh, I'm going to be uncharacteristically brief this week how about that? I'm not going to say much more. I'm not going to rant. I'm not going to rave. I'm just going to go right into this episode with Jeff McNary. want to thank everybody who supports this podcast, this handcrafted, homemade garage band podcast uh, through patreon.com. And uh, also, I haven't mentioned it in a while because of the uh, legal technicalities, but I do appreciate all of you who use my uh, Amazon affiliate link at my uh, webpage, chrisryanphd.com. 
I don't mean to represent in any way that your usage of that Amazon affiliate link at chrisryanphd.com supports this podcast because it doesn't. It doesn't. That would be against the bylaws of the Amazon company, which now rules the planet. So I don't want to in any way run afoul of those laws. Um, that money goes to my um, my medical fund, which will be um, paying for all of the medical procedures that I anticipate needing as I move into my 60s and 70s. It does not support the podcast. It's just for kidney transplants, uh, Viagra. I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna have to have some Viagra at some point if um, I'm lucky enough to have opportunities to need Viagra. So yeah, it, that's for the Viagra fund, purely for the Viagra fund. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna play you out with a tune, a cover, one of my favorite Hendrix covers. This is Angelique Kijo who is from Benin, I think, somewhere in West Africa, I think Benin, uh, and uh, her take on Voodoo Child. Hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for all your support and for listening and telling your friends and your iTunes reviews and all that good shit. Take care. Up.
What's your last name? McNary. McNary. All right. Cool. All right. I'm here with Jeff McNary. Uh, this is uh, another one of our Straight from Costa Rica podcasts. I've done three, I think, so far. Maybe four. Nice. I, I've lost track. That's how many I've done. Um, so many interesting people down here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot so, of really cool people. So you've done a podcast with Kyle Tierman. Correct. Uh, which, Kyle, Sammy, I haven't listened to it yet, so I'm coming into this uh, kind of uh, blind, but I know who you are. You're the, are you the, what, medical director, psychological I'm director? The, I'm the chief medical officer. Chief so CMO. <laughs> big title, right? <laughs> yeah. Basically, I just do a little bit of everything. I oversee the facility. Right. Okay. And so the facility we're talking about, for those of you who haven't heard uh, other episodes that I've recorded down here at Rhythmia. This is the world's only medically licensed uh, ayahuasca treatment center. They call it a life enhancement center. Yeah. So it's not just ayahuasca, there's massage, there's, I just came from a mud bath, which is why uh, those of you who are Patreon supporters can see me sweating like a fucking pig right now. Because <laughs> uh, I, I came from the hot uh, water without going to the cold water. Because I was like, oh shit, it's 320, I gotta go. Um, yeah, and they do uh, breath work. The reason I, I asked to, to reschedule a little earlier is I want to go to this breath work thing. Oh, good, yeah. Because I, I didn't get a chance to go the day we arrived. I've heard that's amazing. It's incredible. Yeah, it, what's it called? Tra is it transformative breath work? Transformative breath work. That's what they call it, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, which I guess is similar in some respects to holotropic uh, breath work. It's you Correct. enter an altered state of consciousness just based on the rhythms and yeah. um, the breathing. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot going on down here, and uh, what I know about you is that you were uh, sort of in a similar position in Malibu at Passages. Correct. Yeah, I was the administrative director of that rehab right. for several years, almost eight years. Right. And you, I, I've been working in healthcare for about 25. Oh, are you an MD as well? No, I have a master's in public health oh, from okay. UCLA. Right. But then I also have my doctorate in psychology. But I've always been a manager of health facilities. Right. And working also with patients individually and stuff. Right. Also. Right. Cool. Yeah. The other thing I know about you from Kyle is that you're like some kind of a badass. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle might think so, but uh, 
I used to be. I guess you could say. A former, once a badass, always a badass. Re retired badass. Retired, yeah. yeah. I use that energy now to like help push healthcare forward in a good way. So right. I channeled my badassness. Right? Your badassery, <laughs> right. So you grew, you just mentioned we were talking Spanish. You, you grew up in where, East LA or East, where? Northeast LA, South Pasadena, Highland Park, El Sereno, that zone uh -huh. of LA, where it's predominantly Latino. Um, I grew up with a very Latin culture in my family. My dad's fluent. My brothers are fluent. Um, my family was very involved with a lot of the community stuff going on in there. Huh. Still are. And so I learned uh, Spanish as a kid. I always heard it, but I also learned it when I lived in Chile for a couple of years. And I just, you know, I've always kept it up. It's just right. been a part of, you know, living in LA, you know, you learn Spanish basically if you're, if you're yeah. aware. Yeah, yeah. If you're not a lazy ass rich person in Malibu, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and even then, it's like Maria, por favor, yeah. mas margaritas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so okay. So I'm I'm thinking this transition from growing. So what did your parents do? What what kind My of? My dad was actually a, a marine biologist. Oh no so, shit. Yeah, he's an oceanographer. So really. Yeah. So we had a really big family, and you can't make a whole lot of money like studying fish right you know, like shiner perch don't really pay the bills too well but <laughs> did he work for the state or no he was in private private companies oh, most really? of the time yeah just kind of doing uh, wastewater treatment stuff oh. and making sure the environment was good in the ocean and huh. yeah he went to humboldt state right. for his graduate degree wow so uh i just grew up like loving the ocean you know surfing my whole life hmm. um, i paddled outrigger canoes for many years really? uh, my family has uh the marina del rey outrigger canoe club in la uh -huh, yeah. so it's connected with the with oahu and hawaii and yeah. the hanamoku family is a big part of my family we're all kind of intermarried really yeah so i've been racing outrigger canoes forever i actually was just back in la for the home race, it's the 50-year Kahanamoku Classic, and I raced. It was cool. Yeah, so I'm how, still How long is the race? Um, there's two races. There's a short course for us older guys. <laughs> retired badasses. So it's like maybe 10 miles, you mm -hmm. know, and that's what we would do. We that's actually, open water, right? Open water, yeah. And then there's a longer race, about 20-something miles, 15 to 20 miles, for the guys, the younger guys who are training every day. How I just many, haven't been training. How many guys in a canoe? Six. And there's, and it's not like a bosun. It's not like the the no. college, the Oxford no. shit. It's you're no. all working. Yeah, we're all working. Right. The, the steersman in the back <laughs> is also paddling, so uh. it's really hardcore. It's, you know, it's what King Kamehameha conquered all the islands with was right. these outrigger war canoes. Yeah. So it's really cool. And the outrigger is to give you stability and the swells and all that. Correct. Yeah. So you don't flip it over. Right. Even though it does happen, you know. Really? <laughs> yeah, it still does. And we race from Molokai to Oahu every year, which is like almost 50 miles. Really? It's a big, that's a crazy race. Man, that must be wild to be out in the open ocean and something like that. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, you're so connected to the to the water. You yeah. Know? It's a big spiritual kind of vibe too. Yeah. A lot of mana, you know, Hawaiian mana in the in What the is community. mana? Like, mana is like spiritual Mojo. Mojo, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. I've always wanted to be to cross an ocean uh, in a like in a container ship or something, you know. Yeah. And I've actually recently learned about a company where you can do that still. Back in the day when I was traveling a lot, there were people who were doing it, but it was at the very end when the insurance companies were shutting it down. Yeah, and uh, so I missed it. the The deadline kind of came when I was farting around doing something else. But uh, huh. I mean, the thing is. The, and the reason I want to do it is just to have a sense of how big the earth is, you know, because yeah. flying to Hawaii, whatever. Yeah. You, know, you, you watch take, a movie, take a, take a dump. That. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I mean, it would be even better, I think, just to be on the ocean out of sight of land 
in a canoe. Holy fuck, Incredible, that must man. be so wild. I used to look at it like it was the way I would reset my life because it's like you're totally out of your body and yeah. you're just completely connected to the ocean and the other paddlers in the canoe. Right. But it just kind of does something spiritually to right. it's it's really cool. And and after that I would have a all right, good, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to work now, I'll get back to the mainland and I can do my thing. And, and then yeah. eventually it comes around October time, which is when the race is, I'm kind of like nervous, I'm okay, ready, here we go again. So uh, I reset myself every year, it's so what I used to do. An annual, like, yeah, like a touchdown. Or yeah. I have a friend who's a spelunker and he sort of described the experience uh, that way. Like when he gets down and he's alone and he turns off his lights and it's like, here I am again, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little older. Shit's happened, but there's like this moment of reassessment and like, yeah. okay, where am I? And like, which is kind of what people are doing here, I think. It's real similar, you know, like, it's, I had all this energy as a kid and I was in these environments, you know, on the street and also with friends and just people around me that were mm. pretty high risk. There's a lot of gangs and stuff. And, you know, you hear gunshots every night when you're a kid, it kind of does something to you. So why were you living in that neighborhood if your dad was sort of semi-professional and... He just, we had seven kids in the family yeah. and we just didn't have a lot of money. Right. You know, and back then when they bought the house in the, in the early seventies, it wasn't, it wasn't like expensive. Like now it's pretty high, high end over there. Yeah. You know, like that zone is getting pricey, but right. so it was like a nice spot. You could kind of buy a pad and you could, you could raise right. a family and it was <laughs> community oriented. Mm. So it was, it was cool in a lot of respects. I, I mean, I loved it and I still do love the air. My parents still live there. Oh really? Same house? Same house. No shit. Same house. And now it's totally different. Like it's, uh. it's safe. It's kind of yuppied out, yeah. Yeah. You know, but it's still whatever. It's nice. But, um, yeah. all that energy that has a kid to kind of survive, I just was able to luckily channel it into some positive things with school and basically the message was if you don't study hard and get out of this then you're you're kind of doomed mm -hmm. you know was the vibe and all my buddies not all of them but a lot of them you were either in jail or they got shot and killed or they got hooked on drugs and there was a couple of my buddies that did really well and, and went to school and, and did great but they really had to fight for it you know and that's I was kind of in that Kind of caught in an undertow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my brothers and I, we rallied. My dad was a big influence for us of good, and my, my mom too, of course, and we just pushed forward and got into schools and all did graduate work. And mm. now we're, you know, now we're doing, with the same energy of the of the street, yeah. we're doing stuff that's helpful and, you know, to people. Right, yeah. Fuck, that's great. <laughs> and were you in mars into martial arts? Yeah, yeah, I've been training martial arts for a long time. Um, I started off with Krav Maga, of all right, things. Israeli. Was, yeah, yeah and I was just learning to fight like in a way that was effective. That's what Krav is. Right. And I was getting my butt kicked by brown and black belt guys. So I was like, well, you know, how can, what can I do to kind of improve myself? They're like, you gotta do other martial arts. You gotta do jujitsu. Oh, do really? Boxing, you gotta do Muay Thai. So I'm like, so all right. So these are the guys in Krav Maga recommending that you round it out with other yeah. skills that's interesting so I started to do that I started uh -huh. training those other martial arts right then I could kind of hang a little bit better with those higher level belts and fight a little bit better and that was a great outlet too and it's real positive you know martial arts are so zen yeah people think it's just you know fighting and bloody and kind of brutal it, it is that <laughs> but it's also very cleansing and centering yeah you know, that's what it was for me at least and humbling absolutely humbling so I still train um, now in jiu-jitsu a lot. I do that down here in Costa Rica at a Gracie gym. Oh. So I get to keep that part up, you know, so it's nice. Yeah. I hung out. I went out drinking with Henzo Gracie one oh, night. Oh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> that must have been interesting. Yeah, it was fun. We had a good time. It was fun. Uh, yeah, I'm, 
I'm buddies with Joe Rogan. Uh-huh. You know, you know, he is, oh, in, and, and he's tight with those guys. Yeah. And then I was up in, uh, I was in Portland, and a buddy of mine who trains in the Gracie Gym up there, there was going to be a UFC fight on that night, and Henzo was in town doing a workshop or something. And my buddy just, you know, out of the blue, is just like, hey, man, if you want to watch the UFC fight, and a buddy of mine who's friends with Joe Rogan is going to be over, we're going to watch at my house. And he was like, sure, why not? And so he showed up with a few other people, and uh, we watched the, the fights. And then uh, and then the other people all peeled off. They were like, oh, we're going to bed, whatever. And Henzo's like, what are you guys doing? Let's go out and show me the town. No way. <laughs> so wow. we were out till 2 in the morning or something. It was fun. That's great. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's that's cool. fun. Yeah, the I, I did kung fu as a kid uh, for a few years, and uh, then my kung fu teacher killed his father. Oh wow, it's pretty heavy. Yeah. And, and then our family moved, and then I did some karate for a little while. Um, but then, as an adult, I did uh, I studied aikido. Oh yeah, that's amazing. I've I been really to some enjoyed classes it. Of aikido. My, yeah. One of my good friends is a is a black belt aikido. Hmm. So he always wanted to get me to go. Right. So I, I went. That blew my mind. Really? It's yeah. Incredible. Yeah, I, I mean, look, if, if you're in a street fight, I don't think Aikido's necessarily what you want to be whipping out. Sure. But as, um, you know, the, re- the way I got into Aikido was my first class in grad school uh, in psychology, it was a, a, an addiction class. Mm-hmm. Actually, this is kind of relevant. It's mm-hmm. not just me telling a story. This yeah. is relevant. Uh, <laughs> you know, this podcast is called Tangentially Speaking. Oh, perfect. So feel, feel <laughs> free to like go off onto whatever okay. tangent you feel. Uh, but yeah, so I was, um, yeah, I had to take this class. It was a, a required class. And I, I know a lot about drugs. I knew a lot about drugs then. I was very interested in altered states of consciousness. I had done a lot of hallucinogens. I had a very sort of like, um, you know, contrarian attitude about hallucinogens. I don't think they should even be called drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, I think their positive potential is, is amazing. I was, um, you know, later I was working with MAPS. Do you know MAPS? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we've had a couple of their, their people here yeah, to visit. Yeah. So anyway, that's the world I'm in, right, mm-hmm. intellectually. And it's like, oh, I gotta take this fucking class. This guy's gonna be talking about how drugs are bad and yeah. this is addictive kind of and everything. textbook, 12-step sort yeah. of mentality. And I'm gonna be calling bullshit and it's yeah. gonna be a long 10 weeks, you know? Because <laughs> I'm not, I'm an adult. I'm not gonna like, yeah. yes sir, it's like, fuck that, right? <laughs> so we go in the, the first class, the guy's like, uh, he says, the first thing he says is, there are like 25 students. He says, raise your hand if you were um, raised in, uh, raised by a parent, at least one or both parents were alcoholics or drug addicts. And about half the class raised their hand. He said, okay, um, now keep, you know, the rest of you raise your hand if you were uh, raised in a family that you would say was severely dysfunctional. And at that point, everyone in the room except me had their hand up. And wow. he said, look, the point is, we all come into this with our own issues. We've got stuff we're working through. That's why we get into this field. That's why we're yeah. you know, interested. How does the mind work? How do you resolve these things? Because we're, we're working that, right? Yeah. And so you need to be really aware and really honest about that before you start working with someone else because otherwise all you're doing is projecting your shit onto them yeah. and you're not helping anybody. Correct. You're wasting their time or making them worse, yeah. right? So I thought, well, that's pretty cool. It's a nice intro. Yeah, like, <laughs> hey, check your own shit, right? Yeah. And then later in the class, he was saying, um, he was talking about how a lot of the people, and I'm sure this, you know, you, you could talk to this a lot. He said a lot of the clients that will come to you are coming under duress. 
The wife said, I'll leave you if you don't get therapy. Yeah. The boss said, you're fired. The cops said, you're going totally. to jail. You know, whatever. So they're showing up and they're like, fuck you, dude. Yeah. I, there's, you know, I'm, they don't really want to be here. I don't want to be here. <laughs> and so they come with all this aggression toward you. Yeah. And he said, you can't let that aggression affect you. You need to just find a way to stay centered and turn that energy into healing energy and, and bring it back to them yeah. with with wisdom and forethought and you know and trick and I raised my hand I said that sounds kind of like Aikido and he said talk to me after class yeah that's a good point talk to me nice. so I went up after class and he said listen I didn't really want to take up class time with this but I've been studying Aikido for 20 years wow and I've learned more about psychology from Aikido than from Harvard or Yale or that's wherever the awesome. hell he went and he said if you want to be a, a therapist you should really think about studying Aikido I said, you know, I'd love to, but I don't have any fucking money. I'm on student loans. Yeah. I'm, you know, working in this nonprofit in the Bay Area. Like, give me a break. Yeah. And he said, well, here's, this is my, my buddy. He teaches, or this is my teacher in um, San Francisco. His name is Richard Moon. This is like 93 or something. Uh -huh. I still remember this guy's name, Richard Moon. And he said, uh, go to his class. The first class is always free. Tell him you're my student, whatever. So I went, I did the class, and after I, I went up, to Richard Moon, I said, "Yeah, you know, Steve sent me," and and he said, "Well, you're gonna you're gonna come back." I said, "I'd love to. I really enjoyed it, but I, I don't have any money, and you know, so yeah. I don't think it's the right time." And he said, "Look, come to class whenever you want. Keep track of how many classes you come to. They're 15 bucks each. Someday when you have money, send me a check. And if I'm oh. dead or you can't find me, use that money to help somebody." Wow, that's awesome, huh? Yeah. Wow. And I'm like, and, and then Can't later, lose, yeah. and, and then later I realized that's Aikido. That's, yeah, yeah. it's not about winning. It's about mm -hmm. finding a way that things work, mm -hmm. you know? Wow, that's great. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I really, so I studied with him and then I studied with other people. Anyway, that's that's a, that, That's like so interesting because the way I, I viewed addiction was really similar. I mean, like the people that I worked with in, in the field, like all my patients, right, they were incredible people they were but they were just so beat down from mm. the families they were from or the community or whatever and they had so much emotional ability and it was just stunted because their their abilities that were really strong and powerful they weren't really valued in the mm. system they were in right. they were just kind of like you know negated yeah. by the families or whoever and they were just really upset and they were in distress right and so the drugs and the alcohol was kind of just remedying and band-aiding, you know, just these these feelings they had that were so upsetting. Right. And so once you kind of got the drugs and alcohol out of the way, you could see who these people were, and they're they're always to me they're always incredible, like mm. just so much art and interesting ways of thinking and just creative and you know musicians and just these incredible people. Yeah, there's there's almost a sense that like if you're really suffering, it's because you're sensitive. Yeah. And and like the dumbasses just go through life and they just sort of like yeah whatever and they don't think about it. Yeah. The people who are in a lot of pain are the people who are capable of feeling, you know. Right. And and so that makes them interesting. If it does if you can. So did you like getting back to your sort of trajectory? Did you 
So you went to, you studied hard, you worked, you know, you sort of took yourself, took your shit seriously, stayed out of trouble. Yeah. Uh, college, did you know you wanted to go into mental health? No, or? I didn't. I was actually an anthropology undergrad. Oh, that's And I really dug it. You know, yeah. like, I actually got into Berkeley for a PhD in no medical shit. anthropology. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And it was crazy because I didn't expect to get in like right out of undergrad because I didn't have any research background. I just had like an interesting sort of like approach to things because I was doing mm. Latin American studies and. Oh. Oh, is that why you went to Chile? Yeah, yeah, I was studying down there and, and also kind of like doing volunteer work in the, in, the in Santiago. Yeah, oh, uh-huh. nice. And so what happened was is that um, when I got into Berkeley, I said, you know, I, I really want to study for like a year, do some research, and defer my my admissions for a year, and I'll just move to back to Westwood to LA, and and I'll do some medical anthropology research with this person called uh, her name is Dr. Carol Browner. She's like the top medical anthropologist like in the world you yeah know, she has tons of research papers. I feel like I, I know her name you might yeah, yeah. she has tons of publications so huh. I I just said hey can I can I you know just for free work with you yeah and do some research and she's like yeah absolutely because I was fluent in Spanish right she was doing a prenatal diagnostic screening research with Latin American <laughs> women like on on amniocentesis and maternal serum alpha fetal protein which is a diagnostic test to see if the, the kid has potential Down syndrome or spina bifida. Mm. So I was looking at the cultural side of the Latin American first generation women in LA that were being offered this test. So, Mm. because a lot of the times the women weren't really, there wasn't informed consent Mm. and women were pushed into amnio and they didn't know that that's not gonna help the baby, it's just diagnostic. So I was studying like that kind of stuff. And what I learned in that year at UCLA, it was in the Neuropsychiatric Institute, I learned like, I don't think I wanna, do grant writing and research my entire career, right? Bureaucratic bullshit. It was super cool, yeah. like the yeah. subjects matter. But what I learned is like, I'm gonna be competing with this person, Dr. Browner, and like five other people that get all their grants, and I'm a kid, and maybe when I'm, you know, 60, I'll be at the top of my field, but by that time, like, I just wanna chill and surf by that time, right? right, right. So I told her, I'm like, I don't, I'm not really down to like go up to Berkeley and do eight years of this and, and really not be happy. She said, why don't you go into uh, the UCLA School of Public Health? Because that's more hands-on and more practical and I can see you have that sort of drive. Hmm. So I was like, cool. So I applied, I got in. I kept working with her, which was nice, through my graduate program. And then I, I was the, the director of the UCLA uh, Family Planning Clinic. Oh, really? I did an internship there my first year and then they hired me and I kind of worked my way up. And then I was working with, um, again, Latin American women that were underserved no insurance, doing reproductive health. And so I was like always into like the cultural side of all that stuff. So it was super interesting. And I saw that there's a lot of, you know, there's obviously cultural issues involved in reproduction right. and in birth control and in all the stuff that comes with that. Right. Latin American women have usually more conservative kind of Catholic They're views, Catholic, right? Yeah. The women, at least that we were seeing. Yeah. So I really was stoked on like all, like what was going into reproductive health for these women. And it was interesting because I was the only male staff, you know? Yeah. It was kind of rare. Yeah. Like I was really into this stuff. The guy's like, what's up with this guy? Right? Like all the women were kind of like, oh, what's up with this, this dude's weird, right? But I, but I was cool with them. They, they got it eventually. You know? No gynecological <laughs> exams, right? Correct, right? I was just doing the research and hanging out with everyone. Right. But uh, so what I, what I saw was there was a huge group of women that were coming to us that had developmental disabilities. Hmm. They were uh, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, all, the, all these different things. 
and these women were coming to us with their parents or with their sisters and, and they were developmentally disabled and they needed to get some reproductive health. Yeah. And they were terrified. Yeah. Because getting a pelvic exam, oh, yeah. if you have Down syndrome sure. and, you're, and you're 17 years old, yeah. is terrifying. Sure. And so there wasn't any, I started doing research in LA and I said, is there any places that kind of target this population? There wasn't. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to write a grant to specifically target women with these disabilities so we can provide education and do outreach and have a really sensitive program at UCLA where we can kind of like help walk them through it in a nice right. way. Don't just funnel them into the normal, exactly. you know, the other thing. Exactly. So yeah, I got great. funded, which great. was amazing. Several million bucks ah. in a year. And that was incredible. Was this from UCLA? Or? No, it was a federal grant. Oh, nice. Yeah. So UCLA was stoked. Yeah. Because you know, like, the money goes through this them. This random dude. Like, I'm just a kid. <laughs> I was like, I was, I think I was 20, 25 years old. All right. And I worked with other people in my staff and we wrote this grant and I was like, ah, we'll see. And we got funded. So that was the first program that really targeted uh, women with developmental disabilities to get reproductive health. So what I saw right there was I love the counseling and the psychological component of healthcare. Right. That was kind of like a turning point for me. Right. And then I said, you know what? I got to become a doctor, a medical doctor. Uh -huh. Because if I don't have like that degree, it's going to be like kind of rough. I'm seeing that I'm managing all these doctors. They don't really respect me because I'm not a doctor. Yeah. I'm just a master's in public health. Right. You know, I know what I'm doing, but still, you know. So I applied to medical school. I actually went back to UCLA and did all the undergrad stuff like as an older student. Right. And I was like getting some grades, getting good grades and applying and studying for the MCAT, you know. And then the whole time they're working at this OBGYN clinic. And I was seeing like the, the struggles that these doctors had with the insurance and with just with, you know, just the system of healthcare was like tying their hands. And it was funny because all these OBGYNs would pull me aside because I got to know them over the years. They're like, dude, don't do this. Don't, if you want to have any sort of sanity in your life, don't become an OBGYN and don't become a doctor. But I thought that was so interesting. That's crazy, yeah. And I, I've read that that's, that's actually true w widely in America, that most doctors would not recommend that their kids become doctors. Totally. Yeah. And I was like, really? Yeah. You know, the first time I heard it, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You're just, you're just tired, right? Because they have these yeah. long shifts. Yeah. But I kept hearing it over yeah. and over. And I said, you know what? You might, you might be right about that. So I applied to med school. I got in. And then I was like, I'm out. I just, I didn't go. I got in, I'm out. Yeah, my wife was kind of You just want to like, see if you could get in? I, my first wife was kind of like, I'm going to kill you. Uh, I, I married <laughs> I married a doctor to me. She's like, You're, I'm going to kill you. Really? Uh, she was cool. But, uh, but we said, you know, all right, let's let's do something different. So uh, her career was taken off in, in uh, she was actually working for Diesel Jeans, of all things. Oh, right. She was a, a regional director. She had a job offer on Oahu. Hmm. So I'm like, let's go. I'm out of here. Let's bounce on LA. Let's go to Hawaii. Because she was from, she grew up on So how, how old were you? I was like, in that time, I was about 27, 28. 27. So you bust your ass. You do all this pre-med stuff, all the bio and the chemistry and all that shit, all yeah. this statistical shit, all that boring motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get into med school. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, yeah, never mind. I'm uh -huh. going to Hawaii. That's right. 
And then I get to wow. the Wow, that was the bit. Was that scary? You know what? I was so sick of it by that time. It was great for me, huh. but it was a little scary. Like, yes, because as far as career-wise, like, what yeah. am I going to do? Because you've been like preparing for this thing, yeah. and you get there, and then you're like, it's like you climb the mountain, and within 15 feet of the summit, you're like, yeah, no, maybe <laughs> another mountain, and you jump off and like yeah. paraglide somewhere else. Everybody was kind of my friends and family were kind of like, what are you doing, man? I was just like, dude, there's yeah. no way I'm gonna I'm gonna survive in this industry emotionally because I'm gonna kill myself. I'm so upset right. about how this is going. I was right. stressed out. I wasn't even a doctor. I was just stressed studying and yeah. running this clinic. The thing is that I had that insight that I was yeah. running a facility. Right. So that was key because yeah. I wasn't like the rest of my cohorts. You've who seen the have, culture. I'd seen it. Yeah. You know, I've been involved yeah. in it. Yeah. So I went to Hawaii and I didn't have a job. I was just kind of cruising, but I had a lot of buddies from there, you know, outrigger and surfing and, and stuff. And a wife is making money. She's making money, right? <laughs> so I was just chilling. It's but right. my, my good friend, uh, Guy Canijo, uh -huh. um, who's Hawaiian, obviously, and he worked for this place called the Institute for Family Enrichment. And it was a, it was a private agency that was contracted with the Department of Health. Hmm. And what they did is the Department of Health would get this block grant money from the feds and they would distribute it out to the, the public schools in Hawaii. And the, and the schools would determine if these kids were were uh, problematic yeah. or if they were special needs. Right. So, um, and then they would get assigned like a caseworker, like a mental health worker. Right. And so my buddy Guy, he would be one of these caseworkers that would like work with these Hawaiian kids. So he's like, hey bro, we got a job for you. Cause I'm like, okay. What is it, right? And he told me, I was like, hey, that's right up my alley. Cause like, I'm a, I'm a punk myself. Like right. I'm a, I came from, a, can, I was a bad kid or yeah, whatever, right? Yeah. And I can, I, I love all these, uh, the Hawaiian culture is awesome. So yeah. like, I'll, I'll do it. Yeah. So I got hired huh. and you know, just on a master's of public health, you could do this, still do this kind of work. Right. And I was under the supervision of a PhD and I would just work with these kids. And I saw that they weren't, they weren't bad kids. Like yeah. they were, they were told. Right, and the, the system was telling these Hawaiian families, oh yeah, you guys are messed up, and you, there's drugs, and you guys at school, you're getting, you're failing, and so yeah. there's all this negative vibes like from the system towards these right. Hawaiian families. Right. So I was kind of like, I'm gonna get you guys involved in some stuff that builds self-esteem, mm. just because that was kind of common sense to me. Like right. if you're upset, let's get you feeling better. Right. Let's go surf, let's go paddle, outrigger. Let's get the the girl clients I have. Let's get you in hula. Some of the guys do hula too, right. of course. So get them in some. So it's hula. also like cultural self respect and all that. Totally. Kind of, yeah. It was great. Huh. And so I, I was working. Also, I was I was teaching chemistry of all things. So were you already doing the outrigging, or is that where it started? No, it started before that in LA. You were doing it back when you were a kid. Yeah. yeah so yeah. you already knew. Already you already knew had this kind of connection to Hawaiian culture and all that. Yeah. yeah. And I've been surfing my whole life, so right. you know, I'd always love the big waves on Oahu and North Shore and stuff. Right. And so I was already kind of involved in that. Right. So uh, what happened was is that I noticed that as soon as the self esteem of these kids started going up. And I'd worked with their families too at the same time. I started kind of involving the parents and the siblings mm. and kind of hanging with everybody. You know, you got you to tweak the, the program to be culturally sensitive. Right. And, you know, what the system was saying from the feds was, okay, follow these guidelines. And they were totally not appropriate mm -hmm. for the Hawaiians. Not at all. Right. Like they Typical. were ridiculous. Right. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to kind of, I have to use some of their, their approaches, right? Like the theoretical background. Okay, whatever. But... I'm going to involve the Ohana in this, you know, right. the family. I'm going to involve the community. I'm going to get them doing things that are uh, relevant for them. And it was great. And my <clears> statistics <throat> started climbing as far mm. as success with these kids. And it was crazy because like in three months, I had 
the most cases and the most success rate that was measured on these scales in the entire state of Hawaii, like in three months. So the feds were like, what's up with this guy? The feds were kind of like, oh, we don't buy it. Mm. So I got audited by the feds. They thought you were cooking it. They thought I was just BSing everybody. Right. So my agency knew I wasn't because I was involved with them. The Department of Health was stoked because these kids were not going to, going to juvie anymore. Mm. They, weren't, they were getting off their drugs. They were passing their urine tests. Mm. Things were looking good. So we had the data. Right. But the feds just didn't believe it. So they came down to Hawaii and they audited all my charts, every single one. And they said, huh, we don't see any discrepancies. Dude, this guy, what the hell? So the feds said, we want you, Jeff McNary, to help us write the laws and the federal allocation of the money and change it to be more appropriate. So I was like, wait, what, dude, what, no Hey, way. to their credit. That was cool. Yeah. I was shocked, actually. It's cool, because it normally they cool. would just squash you and keep going where they were going. Totally. Yeah. So it was nice, because I got to say, like, all right, sometimes we want to have a male therapist and a female therapist working together on a case, because mm. there's different roles, gender roles. Mm. We want to involve now more of a family component. We want to allow, you know, taro patch cultivation and surfing as relevant clinical approaches. Like, mm. it was really cool. So I got to kind of get that kick started. Yeah. And then what happened was after that, I said, you know what, I gotta go and get a doctorate in psychology so I can you know, have more clout in that, in that world and I can kind of mm. do more, you know, right. to diagnose right. and that kind of stuff. And that's what led me back to, back to LA. So then you did a PsyD. Yeah, I did the PsyD, which is the clinical degree of psychology. Right, right. and mm -hmm. where'd you do that? California School of Professional Psychology. Oh, I know that place. Yeah. yeah. Now they call yeah. it Alliant International. Oh, oh, did they change? They yeah. changed the name. Yeah. But it was a great school. They, they, that school actually invented the PsyD degree in the 70s. Yeah. As a response to needing more clinical-minded right. uh, therapists. Right. So it was great. And the interesting part about being in school there was year one, I started working as the director of passages. So again, I was in school, but then I had this clinical background that I was actually living out Right. You know, during my curriculum. And how'd you get connected to passages? It was kind of it was kind of weird because one of my classmates, this guy Carlos Protzel, who's an amazing therapist in LA, he says, dude, I got this great job for you. I'm working at this place called Passages and I show up at night and I work the night shift. I just sit up at the one of these houses, these mansions, you know, in Malibu. I just sit there and I study and I just make sure everybody's asleep and just doesn't do anything crazy. Yeah. So I was like, oh, that sounds good to me. Yeah. So I went and, and applied and they hired me and I was just working at night doing this night shift. And so what happened was uh, the owners, Chris and Pax Prentice, who are, who are great dudes who have this amazing vision for recovery, they noticed that like, you know, I had this background eventually like i was trying to kind of be on the down low because mm. i just wanted to study i was in school mm. but they're like hey jeff has a master's in public health he has a background in you know therapy he's been working blah 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 he's managed places we need an administrative director that we need a new one so they they offered me the job so i was like i'll, I'll take it you know i'm not going to complain cool mm. so year one i was the director of this place that's a lot of work though it was crazy plus grad school plus grad school it was it was pretty nuts it was pretty nuts you still with you were still with the same woman at that nope, point we got divorced you left her in hawaii we, no she had, we, she came with me to la and then we just we just went on different paths yeah you know one path she and we're we're very close still we're yeah. good friends yeah and we have two kids together uh, so that that's awesome like so you if, had kids during all that time yeah in hawaii really yeah oh, man yeah so you're son busy and daughter. you're busy too no doubt, man. It's, I don't sleep much. 
<laughs> oh man, I don't know how people do this shit. Like, I got no kids, I got no job, I and I'm still, I have no time. It's, it's the way, you know, what you happens know? is, that, you know, you know, there's never a good time, they say, right, to yeah. have kids or get married or do that thing, right? But it, once it happens, it just, it just you make it happen. You I, have, I have a brand new daughter right now, she's yeah. two weeks old. Yeah, I <laughs> so, saw a picture, beautiful picture <laughs> of you holding you. her. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So, you know, it's like, my life has been interesting in that sense, like there's always a ton going on. Yeah. But the key for me has been that I've loved every aspect of it. Hmm. I've thoroughly enjoyed all the things I've done. Yeah. And so that makes it doable, I believe. There's a there's a book. Uh, you ever heard of Paul Theroux, yeah, the, the writer? Uh huh. He he has a book called My Secret History, uh, which is his memoir when he went to Africa oh, cool. and he was in the Peace Corps. And it's a really good book. I I don't love all his books because he's kind of a grumpy fuck in some of them. You know, his, <laughs> his travel books where he's on yeah. the train and you know everyone's <laughs> ugly and he hates them all. But uh, but that's a great book. And I remember there's a passage in that where he says uh, the great gift in my life is that I've known when I was happy. Uh, Most nice. people look back and they say, oh, I was so happy then, you know, but he mm -hmm. says, man, when I was happy, I knew I was That's happy. That's a blessing. Yeah, it's a great thing. That yeah. is. That's very cool. Yeah. So it sounds like you got the same kind of blessing there. Yeah. So you're, so, so uh, passages, I was talking to Kyle uh, Tierman earlier today. Um, we were talking about you and, and uh, passages and Malibu and this whole thing. And uh, I was telling him about this song by Warren Zevon called Rehab Mountain. Do you know that song? <laughs> I haven't heard that, no. <laughs> it's, 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 it's great, because you know, he had a lot of issues with yes. drugs and alcohol, yeah. and I guess he did his time in various, mm -hmm. uh, but it's all about how, you know, like he said, I left my home in, in Movie City in the back of a limousine. Now I'm doing my own laundry and I'm getting my clothes clean, yeah. <laughs> and then there's this great guitar riff, me and, me and Liz. <laughs> I've been raking leaves with Liza. Me and Liz clean up the yard. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know if he was talking about passages, maybe, but it sounds maybe like it. So, yeah. you know, it's his house job, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you get like, uh, yeah. I had a I had a guy in the podcast recently who was an addiction specialist and uh, in LA. His name is Adi Jaffe. You'd probably like him. He was I know Dr. Jaffe. Do you know? Uh huh. Yeah. I, I don't know him personally. I know who he is. Yeah, so he was like, yeah. I mean, not, I mean, your trajectory is different, but like he was selling drugs, he got uh -huh. busted, he was like on the wrong side yeah. and then had yeah. a moment of uh -huh. clarity. And so, but like you, he's got the ability to talk to people because he knows where they're coming from. Totally. He's been there, you know? It's a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting because, you know, at Passages, it was... I had worked with low income underserved my whole career. Yeah, big change from Huge Hawaiian, change. you know, well, also delinquents the, to. Also at UCLA with the, the, the uninsured yeah, Latin sure. American women right. I was working with. Right so there. suddenly you're uptown. So, exactly. Yeah. And I thought, like, oh, this is wow, this is going to be different. You yeah. Know? And, yeah. you know, what I found was the issues were actually generally the same. Hmm. You know, they hated their families. Yeah. Uh, they had uh, no, no focus with the, you know, in their life. Uh, the pro the difference, the biggest difference between the, the, the people I worked with before and the Passages clients was that there's no leverage with the Passages clients because what are you going to do? Oh, we're going to take away your, your Rolls Royce? <laughs> it's like th there wasn't yeah. any sort of way to say like, okay, you're going to lose your family. Like, I don't care. I lost them anyway. Like, okay, we're going to cut your rent. Well, I don't care. I have a trust fund of 10 billion or whatever. Right. You know, it's just, right. there's no leverage. So right. that was actually a different challenge that I had with, with the higher end clients. So how did you deal with that? You just have to get, find, they have to find an internal reason 
uh, an internal motivation as to why they don't want to be doing this anymore. So that's a challenge, right? Because they have to go really internal. And they have to be like, okay, well, I'm not happy. I don't like my physical body you know, with drugs and alcohol. I, I, there's Spiritually, I'm spent. I'm at ground zero. So the key to, to the recovery method at Passages was there was all these modalities. That's the part I liked. Like There was massage. There was acupuncture. There was mm. spiritual counseling. Mm. There was meditation. There was like right. all this cool stuff that at the other spots just didn't have the money for that. Sure. So it was like more bare bones. So this place was like all these, like we had 32 different modalities. Is it a closed facility or could they come and go? It's closed and unless they've been there for like night or 30 days, then they can get a pass uh, to go out for a couple hours. Right. But, but yeah, it's closed. Like they can't split. I'll discharge them if they did. Right? So if they split, <laughs> they just can't come back. Correct. Right. There was exceptions, of course, if something really gnarly went down, but usually that was what it meant. If they went AWOL, they were done, you know? Right. So um, what I thought, incorrectly thought, was that all these modalities would, would create a better outcome, that they would have better results, you know, mm. stay sober longer. But the statistics were the same mm. as any place, which is really bad. Yeah, which is pretty low. 12 yeah. to 15% right. are, will stay sober after a year, right. right? after a 30-day inpatient stay. So I was like, what the heck's going on? Like, why, why are all these modalities not really doing anything? Why are the guys you know that I worked with on Skid Row that are homeless having the same success as these you know trust fund billionaires from Malibu, right? Like, what's going on? And I just realized it's because every approach in addiction that's like Western based is more about external change, like change your environment, change your friends. Maybe that's important, but if you don't change inside who you are, nothing's going to change. Right. You have to have the internal motivation to do it. And in a way that. A I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I feel like a lot of the appeal of drugs for people is that we have an innate uh, desire to try to change internally, mm -hmm. and, and we change our consciousness as a way of looking for that. Mm -hmm. Ritual is another way of looking for that. A yeah. lot of you know uh, people who use um, drugs, including heroin and, and drugs that are, that are quite uh, damaging, there's a ritual around it. There's a sense of community around it. Yeah. They get together with their friends. They, they you know, they yeah. burn it in the spoon. They do this yeah. and they do that. And I, I feel like a, a lot of what people are looking for is actually healthy, but yeah. the only place to find it is in these unhealthy places. Totally. So, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my the problem I have in dealing uh, as you know, I don't do clinical psychology, and one of the reasons is that. I feel like we live in a pathological society and trying to help people be comfortable in it just feels like I, yeah. I can't do it. I don't yeah. know. It's I, like a cash I'm not comfortable. Too. Yeah. I agree. I totally agree. So how do you, how do you deal with that? So like you meet someone, like we said earlier, it's mm -hmm. the sensitive people who are suffering, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you get an artist, you get someone who's like, hey, this is fucked up. We're destroying the planet. It makes me so depressed. I just drink till it because I can't sleep otherwise. Yeah. Like how do you deal with someone yeah, like that? Yeah, like the, the approach, right, would be in, you know, the, the traditional approach would be, well, you just got to get okay with it and find your place within it. And that's yeah. bogus. Like yeah. that, that's never going to work. So I think it's, it's about perspective. It's like if I am happy with myself and I feel content and grounded in who I am as a person, I can approach my life in any way I want. 
I can just ignore it or I can get involved or mm. I can have healthy relationships or I can you know work in a company that's like more consciously aware and they can they can do things externally once they're internally at peace right so that was kind of the approach I started to take with people was like you got to get inside yourself that's the key to this whole thing you have to look at you like when I had my uh, I was working in a private practice in Pasadena mm. and uh, it was interesting because my clients were acute. at the same time you're doing after passages. Oh, after yeah, passages. after that. So I was I was getting on my postdoc hours. Oh yeah. And I was working at this place called Las Encinas Psychiatric Hospital. It's a mm. really well known place. It's actually a really good hospital. Mm. And I would have a, a private practice with uh, my supervisor, Dr. Bobby Carlson, who was overseeing me. And I would get all these clients that were acute psychiatric patients. So and also really hardcore addicts. So my patient population was like really extreme. I didn't have like the the casual, uh, you know, mildly depressed, you know, right. person. I had hardcore schizophrenic, hardcore uh, dual diagnosis, right. you know, with drugs and just craziness. Right. And sometimes these patients, right, they'd ask me like, okay, what am I supposed to do? You're the therapist. Tell me what I need to do for my life. And at first, I would tell them. I'd right. be like, well, let's get you in a sober living. Let's get you a little job. Let's get you back in school. And then we would do all these things, kind of more like a case manager would right. do. Right. And it, none of it worked. None of it worked. It was just, mm. it would always fail, and they would not go, and they would drop out, and they wouldn't come back for therapy. So I started to say, you know what? I'm not going to provide you with the answers. I want to create an environment in this therapy session that you can figure out for yourself what you need. Right. So when they would ask me that same question, what should I do? You know, you're the doctor. What do you do? I'm like, I have no idea. I have no clue what you should do. Let's figure it out together. I'll help you figure it out, but you got to come up with the reason. Right. And so the problem that again that I faced with that approach was there's no tools. There's no tools that are that are available for people, especially if they don't have money. It's really hard. Like yeah. okay, like go do yoga. Well, I don't have a car, right? And that's you know donation twenty, thirty bucks. A I mean, just kind right. of like with your Aikido, right? You right. didn't have the money. Right. All the places in LA aren't as yeah. as nice <laughs> as your as your yeah. instructor was, right? Yeah. But so again, I was faced with this struggle. How do I get my patients to connect with themselves in a way that's realistic? Yeah. It, it was really hard. You know, I was struggling with that. Did you? How'd you resolve it? Well, at the perfect timing, I met. Jerry, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he was so motivated to change. I mean, yeah. it was incredible. Yeah. Right? You, you've talked to him. I've talked to him. I did a podcast with him yesterday. Uh -huh. So uh, I guess I'll release this after Jerry, so yeah, we can yeah. we can talk about Jerry and people know who we're That's talking good. about. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so with him, see, it was interesting because he was he came to passages as a client. Yeah. And I wasn't working with clients because I was the director. Right. So I had a team of therapists that would work with the clients, right? And and when he showed up, he was so, uh, he was he had uh, two things going on. He was totally screwed up and upset and sad and at his last rope. Yeah. But he was also totally driven to succeed. Right. So he had those two things going on, right? <laughs> and and I yeah. was like fascinated by him. Yeah, I'll bet. They walked him right up to my office immediately because he was just like this ball of energy, mm -hmm. you know? He was high at the time, but just totally like this big personality. Right. So I was like, huh, we're full right now. We had a lot of clients there. Can I give this dude to one of my therapists? And can I trust that the process will will, will go well? I was like, I don't uh, think so. 
Yeah. I'm going to work with him myself. Yeah. Because this dude is so driven to do the right thing. Yeah. He just doesn't know how. And he's so smart that any slip up, he's going to lose respect and walk out. Big time. Yeah. Big time. And you know, he had a rough background as a kid and as a young adult. Yeah. And I had a not the same background, but also rough. Right. So we could kind of see eye to eye on that. We weren't. Right. I wasn't going to BS him. Right. I was going to really be real with the guy. Right. And he appreciated that too. Right. So we we connected right away. You guys have similar sort of vibe, I would say. Yeah. You know, having spent a couple hours with yeah. him yesterday. Yeah. I mean, he's more toned down now, I'm sure, than he was <laughs> then. <laughs> but yeah, he's the. You know, the thing, and and you know, I don't mean to be talking about Jerry. We both. You love the guy. I really respect him and admire yeah. him as yeah. little as I know him, but I, I could see why you would. But, uh, you know, he, he likes to talk about how he was such an asshole. And, and this is in the podcast, so this yeah. is I'm not betraying any private conversation. <laughs> but uh, what kept getting me is like how, uh, like I was like, I don't, who was watching you? Who who is it that was like, dude, you're acting like such an asshole? Who is that? Yeah. Like, because there's <laughs> there's this schism in him where I feel like even at his lowest point, there was there was a part of him that was watching it and going, hey, Jerry, come on, man. Yeah. You know, you're better than this, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a weird thing, you know, because what I said to him is like, true assholes don't know they're assholes. That's right. You know, that's right. I always disagree with him when he says that. He oh, really? Is, I do. It's oh, interesting. so you and I both did that. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. says he's an asshole. Yeah. But I'm always like, dude, everyone loves you. Yeah. What are you talking no, about? No, you're a good guy <laughs> who was acting like an asshole. Yeah. That's a whole, that's a different thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's actually the most like gentle, kind-hearted, big, just emotionally sensitive dude I've ever met. Right. You know. Yeah. And I think he he calls himself this this monster from before, just because I think he he was so upset about the way he was behaving. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Remorse. Yeah. Exactly. That's fair enough. So yeah. what happened right with this guy with so. Jerry is that is that um, after he left Passages, he did really well. He got off his Demerol addiction, which is not easy, as we know. To get off after Demerol. a 30-day thing? He actually did 60 days. 60 days. Yeah, he did 60 days. Right. And he moved to, he, he was living in Philadelphia, or in Pennsylvania, and he moved to LA and, and lived there. And I still worked with him individually right. for about five years. Yeah. <laughs> Five days a week. <laughs> five days a week. And uh, it was super interesting. Uh, that's that's kind of where the, the therapist role, kind of therapist-patient role ch switches. It can happen. You know, yeah. All of a sudden, he's the therapist and I'm the patient. Like, whoa, wait a minute. Got her you know? Yeah. It was super interesting. Yeah. But uh, the key to, to Jerry's uh, uh, sobriety and also his peace of mind was that he was able to do plant medicine eventually. But what led up to that was that I was just racking my brain about what can we do for you besides therapy? Like maybe go to Agape with Beckwith, like right. go to go there. Cause I used to send all the patients at, at passages there on the weekend to do mm -hmm. something. So go meet Michael, you know, go, go do yoga. He never took the yoga, <laughs> but he's like, I had all these, like, go surf, like learn how to stand up paddle, like do something. Right. So I'd always kind of push him in these things. And some of the stuff, you know, he liked, but, but most of it, he was still kind of like, I'm still not happy. I'm still not content. I like Beckwith and I'm working with Kathleen McNamara, a spiritual mm -hmm. counselor. She's a beautiful, amazing person. So he had these key things in his life that he was, you know, working for stability with, but he couldn't quite get past that corner. Mm. And I'm, in his podcast, I'm sure he told you about how he figured out about plant medicine, he heard about it. Yeah. So he did plant medicine down here in Costa Rica on a whim. And it was like this incredible, mind-blowing thing yeah. for him where he saw 
for the first time why he's really upset. And right. I'm sure he explained all that, did, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what happened was, from that point forward, when he did this plant medicine, he called me. He's like, Dude, you're not gonna believe what happened. And you didn't know about this. Uh-uh. I, and you, I mean, about iboga or ayahuasca. I'd only, were... I didn't know anything about ayahuasca. Uh-huh. I'd heard a bit about iboga because I'd watched some documentary about some guy in New York who was taking clients to Mexico, and I thought it was cool. Uh-huh. But I didn't know much about it or uh-huh. anything. And he said, "Dude, I just did iboga. You know, I just did this plant medicine, and I'm." I'm okay now. I feel like at peace finally. I was like, no way, dude. No way. There's no way. <laughs> like we've been working so hard and you know, I know that we're hitting dead ends a lot and you know, my whole career I've been hitting dead ends with all my clients, but is this the answer? Like, is that what you're telling me? Like what you're telling me is you finally figured out what, what it is. He's like, yeah, I did. He was so like solid about it. Could you hear it in his voice? I could. Yeah, I could hear it. And then he, he, uh, he told me to come down to, to Costa Rica and try it. I was scared. I was like, why? Well, yeah, I mean, I can understand why. Did you feel like, was this an affront to your professional dignity? Well, my my profession, right, the, the psychology profession, you know, frowns upon this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's schedule one. Right. It's not approved. Right. The AMA doesn't recognize it as viable. The Board of Psychology doesn't have anything to do with it. So, yeah, it was kind of like, but... The, the, I knew professionally it would just be ridiculous. No one would, would believe it or accept it. However, I knew deep down inside of me that maybe this was an option because I didn't really believe in the system I was in anyway. Hmm. Like I wasn't buying into the, the therapeutic model. Hmm. I was always a rebellious dude in there. Right. You know, from, from the start. Yeah. So I, I said, all right, you know, I'll try it. To, I want to check it out. But I'm totally scared because I didn't have, I didn't have a psychedelic background. I'd um, never done any psychedelics. Really? Nothing. Weed? I'd smoked weed a little bit. Yeah. But barely. Did it did it freak you out, the weed? Uh, it didn't freak me out, but it just wasn't my thing. Right. It wasn't something that I was kind of like... It wasn't like intense paranoia or anything? No, nah, nothing uh, like that. I mean, I saw the it. benefits in it for people, but I right. was, just wasn't my, my deal. Right. I didn't have an addiction history. I didn't right. have anything like that. And so I'm like, all right, I'll do it. You know, And I, I came down to Costa Rica with him and his son. And one of our, our other workers, Hamid, a guy in Malibu who's an amazing director of our Malibu office, we came down and did it, and I was like... You did the Iboga. Iboga. Whew. Right Jump off in the, the start. fucking deep end. <laughs> Holy totally, shit, yeah. dude. We just went right for it, you know? <laughs> it was incredible, man. And, and I was super scared. Yeah. I was terrified up to yeah. the point, right? And uh, I've what, done a lot of hallucinogens, and I'd, I'd be scared to do yoga, for sure. Yeah, yeah. it and, was intense. And what was it, like an 18-hour thing? Yeah, or? you know, well, it was about, it lasted about 12 hours. 12 hours. But then I slept for 36 yeah. after that. Right. I slept 36 hours. So, so what'd you feel, I mean, I don't know, to, to what extent you feel like talking about it. Oh, yeah, it, I can yeah. tell you exactly what went down. Yeah. It was, so my whole persona up to that point was, kind of like we were talking about earlier, I'm a badass, like... I'll kick your ass, I'll vibe you, like I'll be out in the water surfing and if anybody's in my way, I'm like paddle in. Like I was kind of like an enforcer type mentality mm. out in, in the lineup. I was, an, I was kind of a dick, basically. And, <laughs> Here but, we go again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was, I was just, you know, I would, I would but, muscle but you people. Must have been, you must have been compassionate. And, I, was. I mean, You were a therapist and you were working with these kids true. and these women. I, mean, I had you were, that side to me that, yeah. was, that was loving. Yeah. I had that, that was my true self. But the way I viewed myself to me was different. Mm. Like I'm, I'm, 
I'm mean, I'm gruff, I'm angry, don't get in my way, like I'll stomp you, that kind right. of, that's how I saw myself. Right. Most of the world didn't really see me that way. They saw me as a nice guy and a loving dude and a helpful guy. So you were kind of like, you were, but you were a defender of, of vulnerable people. I, yes. I could see there's a theme in your life there Big where time. you're coming in and, yeah. So, but you're like a tough, a tough ass, but for a good cause. Exactly. Right. That, that was kind of my thing, right? Right. Yeah. So when I did Iboga, what what the biggest part for me that happened was I got to go back to my childhood and see what happened to me as a kid that led me to kind of take on that persona. Mm. And I always thought, you know, before Iboga, I thought, oh, well, you know, I had some big story about why. Like, oh, I'm in this rough area. My parents don't have any money. I'm fighting on the street. I, all my homies are, you know, in jail, getting shot. I'm, I got to dodge bullets. I had all this kind of like big story about why I was tough. And it all made sense to me and to mm. other people. Like, oh, it must be why. Sure. But what I realized is that was not the case at all why. Mm. The reason is because I was just a scared little kid. I was yeah. totally terrified of my neighborhood. Right. And that's all it was. And I got to see myself as a child and I got to go up to myself as a kid and, and talk to myself. And I was five years old and I'm like, Jeffrey, like, what's going on? Like, why are you scared? Like, what's, you know, what's the deal? And, and little Jeffrey wouldn't even talk to me. Little Jeffrey got on his skateboard and just bounced. I had to chase him down, like through the streets. I had to, Come back. It's just me. The streets of your old neighborhood. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. And I finally coerced him to talk to me. You know, he's a little guy, right? Because little... he was scared. Totally. Scared of you. He's scared of everything. Yeah. And I go, what's going on? Like, what? Why are you running off? It's just me. You know, it's cool. We're the same. And he's like, I'm, I'm scared. I'm like, well, what are you scared of? I'm scared of this neighborhood. I'm scared of that bar across the street. I'm scared of all these bad, mean kids that always steal my stuff. I'm, I'm afraid to go to school and blah, blah, blah. Just all these reasons that were totally legit for a five-year-old. Yeah. I was like, wow. So that was the point where I turned into, I got to protect myself. I got to create this persona so people don't take advantage of me or they're yeah. afraid of me and then right. I can be safe. And it just kind of like snowballed until it was just this huge thing that wasn't even real. Yeah. And so that was a huge breakthrough for me on, yeah. on the plant medicine. I realized like I was just scared right. and, and for good reason. It's not a bad reason. Yeah. It's valid. But I don't need to be scared anymore. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm not being chased by anybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that that's a good experience. So, how did that affect you personally? Well, what happened was is that I realized that, uh, you know, if I can do twenty years of therapy in like one night, is basically what that let, in my opinion. Because you had meant. you'd been in therapy yeah. to get your license. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. You know, the sixty-five hours, you right. know, one-on-one. And it was kind of a joke. I mean, my therapist was awesome. Like she was super cool and really good, but she knew the whole time I was full of crap. Yeah, she just, she would just sit there and smile. Like she knew. She never called you on it? She would, you know, she would. But again, I was intimidating her. Right. You know, like don't right. dare, you know, ask me. Like, and she knew you were just doing this because you had to, to get the license. Correct. So it's a different kind of therapeutic thing. It is. Where you're like, I'm here, you know, I got to do these hours. <laughs> Let's go through the motions. Exactly. Yeah. And you know what's funny is that I told her that I want, because usually when students are getting their hours, they pay like a really low rate, mm. like just to kind of get through. Yeah, yeah. I told her, I said, I'm gonna pay your full rate. And she was like shocked, like why are you gonna do that? I said, I just want to, I wanna pay the full rate. What I realized later about why I did that, so she had no leverage on me. Right. <laughs> it was a manipulation from there. <laughs> 
<laughs> you paid a lot of money yeah, for what that. What are you going to say to me? I'm paying you 250 an hour. You can't say shit to me. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was, wow. Dude, I was deep, man. I yeah. was laying it on thick all the yeah. time to not let people Protective get layer. Yeah. Definitely. Mm. So um, what happened was is that I realized like I was just a scared little kid. And if I can get to that deep issue for me in one night, what can all these people I've been working with, what, what, how would this benefit them? Right. You know, I immediately started, my brain was just like spinning. Right. I'm like, I finally have one tool that might be able to help these, these clients. And so uh, Jerry was just like floored by his experience. He was like in heaven, just so happy. And I was like also really stoked about what happened with me. I'm like, dude, we, let's, get a, let's do this. Let's do this for the world. Let's have a place that can do plant medicine in a safe way, right. that people feel comfortable, right. and they can get to these issues quickly. Right. Because you know, the model I was working in was like, all right, if you have trauma, it's probably gonna take 10 years of therapy. If you have addiction, you know, the average inpatient stay was anywhere from eight to 12 inpatients and just like thousands of dollars, super expensive. Yeah. I mean, the, the duration of Western therapy for these issues is years and years and years and years. Meanwhile, your life's going by. Yeah. Opportunities are drying up. Families are falling apart. Exactly. Yeah. There's suicidal yeah. Uh, stuff. Yeah. There's overdose. Yeah. There's all these high risk things. And I, I always was like, I don't have 10 years to work with these people. Right. I got maybe six months right. before they drop out of therapy or overdose. Right. So I loved the, the whole concept of plant medicine that it could get to the issue quickly. Right. So you guys, Jerry bought this place, your medical director, what did you, what'd you call Chief, yourself? Chief medical officer. Chief medical officer. Um, now, when people come down here, do you have addiction treatment here? We do technically, yes, have addiction treatment, but um, we're not targeting specifically addicts all the time. Right. We do have addicts come once a month, though. We do have addicts come here. So do you have like a week for addicts, or is it just everybody's well, mixed together? What we or? try to do is we try to funnel them into sort of one week, but if, if there's enough clients for it, then we, we do you know other weeks, too. Mm. But the goal is to um, treat people that have addiction, but also more so it's, it's about people that don't have addiction because the reason is because running an addiction facility completely is is really hard right um, if we have a certain percentage of the patients that have addiction then that's really good because we can work with that right but we're not gonna we're not gonna tell anybody no you know that's like sorry you're an addict you're out we're not gonna do that but but there's certain ways that we get the clients here that uh, we can get a nice mix right because you know it's hard for people that are not living in Costa Rica, it's hard for them to get here. Right. You know, we're talking about international travel. Yeah. Um, if they, you know, in the States, when people would show up at passages from like, you know, Kansas City, they'd be high, they'd have drugs, you know, on them. And, you know, it, they usually made it through, you know, the ticket counter, but, or security. But if you try to do that in, in a foreign country, like it's, the yeah. consequences are different thing. Yeah. Severe. Yeah. So, so the addicts we work with here at, at, at Rhythmia, um, they're, they're not, I wouldn't call them as extreme, mm. you know, as the people that we dealt with at, at passages, mm. even though they might have that extreme. So they're more, more sort of self-directed and like, yeah, a I little mean, more they, under control, a little bit more under control. You know, yeah. I would love to eventually be able to treat all the addicts, you know, hardcore heroin, meth, et cetera, you know, with, with plant medicine. But again, with Iboga, we're not using Iboga here. Right. So with, with ayahuasca, 
there's a lot of meds and drugs that you can't be on right. when you're taking ayahuasca. Right. So it just right there eliminates most of the, the addicts. What's the flush out period? Like for, for let's say, uh, let's say it's heroin. You got to be off of it for 14 days. Oh, really? Yeah. And that's obviously really hard. Yeah. Same with Iboga though, no? Isn't well, there? Iboga, you can detox people with Iboga right away. You have to just have the knowledge on how to do it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So like places in the world that treat addicts with Iboga, they, they're really skilled and they know how to do it and they can ease them in. Usually they give them root bark as opposed to the total alkaloid, which is really oh. uh, strong. I see. They'll, they'll ease them into it with root bark. Are you familiar with the, the clinic in Tijuana? I'm not familiar with it, but I've, I've heard about it yeah. and I know people that have gone there, but I've never actually visited uh. it myself. Yeah, if you ever want to, I can help you. That's ibogaine. Yeah, so that's different than the iboga. So, what is the difference? The difference is um, iboga is has thirteen alkaloids that are the active ingredients. Right, that's considered the full plant. Right, that's the root bark that they scrape from the roots. Right, and they they get it and they they administer that to people. So that's the full plant. That's more of like a psycho spiritual stuff is in there. There's a component of addiction in there. There's a lot of different things it can do. It's a it's again, it's the 13 alkaloids together. Hmm. Ibogaine is one of those alkaloids. And it's the alkaloid that, that resets neurochemistry and opiate receptors and is used for addiction. Uh, okay. So they'll isolate out the ibogaine. Right. And that by itself is super, super strong. Right. And the place in Mexico and other places in the world, you have to be on basically life support. <laughs> right. And IVs and tons of respirators almost ready to go, you know, and, yeah, and you're, they, you're basically in a three day coma. Yeah. It's an incredible miracle that happens though with people that, that need that. Right. But it's not, uh, it's not for people that, that are mildly addicted. It's right. for people that are hardcore heroin it's like addicts. like last resort kind last of Last resort, like yeah. showing up with tracks, marks and gangrene and holes in their body. And that's the, that's not necessarily only the people that do have right. Ibogaine, right. but that's kind of like the, the, the prototype, yeah. let's say. So with Iboga, there's much more of a spiritual component to it. Mm. And there's much more of like a psychological awareness to it. So, and it's milder, you know, when you're taking the full plant. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I got you. So with yeah. ayahuasca that we're using here at Rhythmia, there's a lot of meds, like I was saying, in drugs that prevent uh, the people from taking this particular plant medicine. So um, they, they, the people that have addiction that want to do plant medicine, they're better off doing Iboga hmm. than they are ayahuasca at first. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so what kind of people, like, what's the the target audience for a place like this? I mean, of course, you got just sort of creative people who sure. want to, like, get in touch with themselves, uh-huh. know themselves better, yeah. transformative thing. But as far as, like, clinical purpose who are you looking for here trauma is a big one trauma so trauma. childhood trauma PTSD kind of stuff yeah PTSD yeah. childhood trauma right. current trauma they're huh. going through um, anxiety issues depression issues right uh, not feeling uh, like they have a life purpose right like lack kind of, of direction and lack clarity of direction. Yeah. exactly those are the those are the the main type of guests that we have here and we do have like I said we do have a component of, of addiction as well now, do you uh, I was wanted to ask you about this before with the addiction, but also with the, the trauma and, and all this kind of stuff. Is there a, a therapeutic element to this? I mean, people go and they have their experience mm-hmm. at night, and then the next day, do people sit down with you or with other therapists? Yes. I know there are like sort of group things uh-huh. working through, 
But are there individual? Is there, there is that is. component here as well? There is. Yeah, there's individual therapy. There's individual counseling. Oh, okay. Um, Paola, who does our our uh, Michael Beckwith course, the answer is you. Mm-hmm. She's a, a life coach, and she talks to people. Right. I talk to people individually. Right. Um, some of our shaman will do one on ones. Right. And uh, Nicole, our breathworks uh, supervisor, she does one on ones. Okay. So there's a lot, and even Jerry does one on ones. You know, not right. as a clinician, but as the, right. the owner. Guy's the been there. CEO owner. Yeah. yeah. And he and his his um, sessions are the most effective in my opinion really because people can relate to him the best yeah you know and he comes from a real a real perspective yeah. yeah so there's a lot of support so before they do the plant medicine they have to go to some classes and they have to they have to get uh, screened before they even come here there's like a screening process on mm. the phones mm-hmm. before they even show up right if there's a certain particular client that might be a little bit more complicated then I'll get on the phone with that client and I'll talk to them in the States or wherever they're coming from, right. Canada, a lot of them come from. Right. And I'll work with their, do- we'll do doctor to doctor consults and stuff. Right. So we'll make sure they're appropriate. And then they get here and then we prep them with classes. We help them set intentions. We help them understand what this experience is going to be like. Right. So there's a lot of prep that goes into it. Then they have their experiences with the plant medicine. And every day there's an integration group. And there's also the availability of one-on-ones. Right. There's lectures. There's a lot of support here. Yeah. Big time. And it's a one-week uh, minimum. Yeah, you you can't just minimum. fly in for a couple days. Correct. Right. And that's important because if somebody shows up for just like one ceremony and then leaves, uh, there's no time to really figure out like how are they absorbing this experience. Right. <laughs> it could be a little sketchy. Uh, you know, and it, it might not be a, a, that effective. Yeah. Because if you don't have a context to the knowledge and information you got, it's going to be just... Confusion just evaporates. Yeah. 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 So it's important to have that one week minimum you yeah. know, so you Get all the the services we offer and this and Rhythmia has been open a little over a year right? Yeah, a little over a year. Yeah. yeah, exactly When we bought the plate when Jerry purchased Rhythmia I moved here the next week and I was here by myself for about a year and a couple months and I was writing the license with the Ministry of Health and a couple of our consultants and attorneys. Right, right. And that's where my public health background really came into right, play. Right. So I wrote the the, the program, and the protocols, Spanish, yeah. and the Spanish, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and all the, it took me a while to do, we had to go back and forth with them. Right. And uh, eventually they approved us to use plant medicine in a medicinally and therapeutically prescribed manner for people. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. So it was really that's, cool. that's amazing that you guys got that through. No kidding. <laughs> I incredible. know. I pinch myself often. And he bought it before you got the approval, which is oh, what's yeah. even crazier. Uh-huh. I mean, I would have thought well, you get the approval, then you buy a place. You know, what's interesting is that when, when him and I were doing plant medicine before um, we had the license, before we even bought the place, we were asking questions, you know, during our ceremonies, right. basically to yourself or to the medicine. So you did more iboga? Yeah, a uh, lot more because uh, uh. all of our business questions that we asked were during those ceremonies. Right. And we got clear, concise, uniform answers on everything we should do to open this facility, how much to charge, which one to buy, who to hire. Really? Everything. The whole place is built on plant medicine answers that it's Jerry and I had. Incredible. It's crazy, right? <laughs> and the crazy part about it is Jerry would be in one in his room. Uh-huh. Oh, you were separate. And I was in another And you're getting the same answers. Same no exact shit. answers. And, and they're detailed answers. They're not like yes, no's. Yeah. They're like, 
wait until June 15th to file this paper, <laughs> like that kind of stuff. It's wild, man. Uh, no, it's hard to believe. Yeah. It's hard to believe, yeah. but I, I, I witnessed it. I was a part of it. So it's, yeah. uh, it's the coolest thing. Yeah. So people ask us like, well, how did you guys even put this together? I'm like, you know what? Like, I don't really know. Just, it just what we were told. It all came through us through the plant medicine. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> Holy shit. Mm -hmm. uh, so, okay. So where do you go from here? Well, uh, what's going on now is that we, our program, you know, Jerry is a mastermind of, of health business. He knows how to take a big concept and fine tune it into like a super efficient program. Mm -hmm. And so what we've been doing in the last year and a half is we start off with like ceremonies every night and all these different classes and all these different things. And what we saw through our, um, our exit surveys and also our, our data that we were collecting on effectiveness is that, okay, that might not be so helpful, maybe not that. And so we finally whittled it down to a certain protocol that we do. And it's ceremonies on certain nights and then other nights it's breath work. Mm -hmm. And there's certain classes we offer and certain ones we don't. And we just got it to this really tight program. And now we're just trying to get better and better and better within that program. And we're training the staff all the time I'm constantly helping them understand projection and transference and all that kind of right. stuff because it's really important. Right. Um, the shaman are awesome. Yeah. And a big part of like what we're trying to do here is keep the integrity of the spiritual side of the plant medicine, because the 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 diehards, you know, like the the people that are like totally into plant medicine, for you know since the '60s or or sooner than that, are uh, you know. They're, they're always afraid of like the corporate vibe that, that can come along with plant medicine. I don't blame them because, yeah. you know, it becomes a money making thing and you, right. know, you lose the, 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 the spirit of it. So we've been set from the beginning that we don't want to lose that. We want to keep that as a really important part of what we do. So the shaman, Taita Juanito, Mitra, those guys are the shaman in charge of here. They are huge influencers into how we, we manage the facility. Right. We take into consideration what they tell us right. big time because it's really important. Yeah, you know, I said to Jerry yesterday, uh, and that, you know, say it to you as well, that I really respect the way you guys found the sweet spot between having reverence for what you're doing and a sort of spiritual respect for what's going on here uh, without going off into namaste you know patchouli yeah, bullshit that stuff makes me crazy well <laughs> you know <laughs> i mean i think it just it turns a lot of people off you Boy. know because like i you know it, there's there is a spiritual element to this and, and it's important and it's there's a sincerity and a beauty and a depth and all that but you don't want to start telling people how to interpret those things Correct. you know and People start telling me Jesus loves me and I want to slap them, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. what the fuck do you know about yeah, what Jesus totally. and I are doing, totally, you know, totally. so, uh, but you guys, but then it's not the other side either. It's not like cold clinical, you know, right. this, this is a molecule that interacts with your neurochemistry in a That's way right. that, so that would turn people off too. Right. It's yeah. so, so you, you, you found the spot and so yeah. far you guys are right on it. It's really nice. That's been like, I, I told Jerry, I asked him like when we, before we even had any clients there, I said, what do you think our number one challenge is going to be here? I had an idea, right? He's like, merging business with spirituality. Right. It's going to be the number one challenge. I'm like, sure. yes, it will. Because there's laws, right. there's ethics, right. there's all these policies, rules, and regs that we're following with the Ministry of Health that we're totally on track with and doing great in. Right. And then there's this other stuff that's like, 
this esoteric, like unidentifiable, like spiritual realm right. that that is happening every day here. Yeah. And how do we manage that in a way that still allows it to be what it is, but doesn't get outside the bounds of like the law? Right. <laughs> so that's right. basically my job is to right. make sure that thing blends. You keep it, keep it on the straight and narrow. Exactly. But and also like you know the, another part of that same challenge I think is I, I was a friend of mine. Uh, I think it was Neil Strauss. Do you know him, mm-hmm. the, the writer? Yeah. Uh, we were talking about this kind of stuff, and he said, I never trust a, a spiritual person in the material realm. Yes. And I was like, what do you mean? That's, he's like, he's like somebody who charges money to talk about yeah. religion. and yeah. Th- Like, yeah, I don't yeah. trust him. It's, it's a business, you yeah, know? exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, I get where he's coming from. But, you know, here you guys are. You're doing this thing. You have to charge money. You have to, it has to be a, a self-sustaining enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. And ideally, even an enterprise that's making some money that could then be used to maybe open another one. Correct. And, you know, because yeah. if you believe that what's going on here is worth happening, then you want it to spread. That's right. You know, that's right. And, and Jerry believes 100 percent as well as I do that, you know, the way he went about getting his peace and happiness is a really great way for other people to maybe try it as well. Right. So that's a huge part of like why we exist is because. If Jerry, again, his words, if he can get happy and be content with the crazy life that he had, anybody can. And I believe that. And mm. so all the modalities we have here are basically what Jerry did himself as a client when he was in treatment about what he can do to get to get peaceful and calm and, and have happiness in his life and good relationships. So yeah. that's what's driving this place. It's not money. Um, we're actually, you know, we've never even made a profit. Yeah, you know, today. yeah. he told me the, bur- the burn rate. <laughs> it's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, but you know what's funny is that we couldn't be happier. You know what, I, I also, I didn't, I didn't mention this to Jerry yesterday, but I love the fact that this place is... The, the, the foundation, the financial foundation of it comes from plastic surgery. Isn't that great? I know, right? People, people <laughs> yeah. you know, he made all those millions of dollars, yeah. you know, facilitating people trying to change themselves uh-huh. on the surface. That's right. And now all that money's gone to this place. You want to change yourself? Forget about the surface. Let's That's go right. deep. That's you know? right. It's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. There's That's a nice a symmetry point. to it. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, do you know uh, William Blake? You ever heard of him, uh-huh, the, yes. the writer? Yep. He said the uh, the palace of wisdom lies at the end of the road of excess. I, I love that. Yeah, that line yeah. came to me yesterday. I was thinking this place is like the palace of wisdom. Yeah. At the end of the road of excess. That's right. You know? That's right. You know, it, it's yeah. it's interesting because, you know, when when purists, uh, plant medicine purists, I guess you could call them. I don't know what the good word is. When they when they kind of like you know initially they kind of frown upon really be like oh you know because they don't know what we're doing then they come here or we invite them to visit us and they leave and they're like dude this place is the bomb yeah it is actually doing the work right in a way see this is the thing we're not trying to to target plant medicine veterans to come here even though we we welcome them of course we've had plenty they're they're wonderful right bringing a lot of knowledge we're targeting people that would never in a million years consider plant medicine right. for anything. Right. And people that would be scared to go into the jungles of Peru sure. or right. whatever. Right, and hang out with a bunch of hippies and get eaten by mosquitoes. Exactly. Yeah. And that's been the, the goal is to get the, the mainstream people that really need this healing right. to come in an environment that is acceptable to them. Yeah, super comfortable place. Exactly. Super, super relaxing, yeah. clean, wonderful. Yeah. Um, look, you know, it sounds like I'm doing a commercial for you guys, and 
and but my audience knows I don't even have commercials myself. I don't. Yeah. This podcast is funded by donations. Nice. Because uh, I fucking hate commercials. Yeah, totally. But when I see something that's working and doing really important stuff, I'm happy to help spread the word. Thank so you. I'm, yeah. I'm really glad to we be. We appreciate it. To it's, be part of this. We're glad you came because it's it's nice for you to come and see what this is about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Definitely. You can, you, what the thing is, you can feel the vibe when you're here. Right. Like you can't you can't hide the vibe that goes on. Yeah. You know the real intent of us yeah. and of this place. And right. It's just it's wonderful. It's magical. And I have to say, you know, one of the things I always look at is. You know, you want to see if somebody's an asshole or not, look at his kids, look at his dog, That's you know, right. look at, look at the, the, the sort of quiet people around, right? Yeah. Uh, the people who work here, they're really nice people. They are. They're, they're happy. Uh -huh. You know, I guess uh -huh. they're getting paid well. They seem to be respected. Yeah. Uh, there's a feeling like they're happy to be involved in this as well. Totally. So that's, that's a cool thing. And, you know, the Costa Rican staff are just amazing yeah that's what i'm talking about yeah, i'm saying the, the the nurses and the people oh, yeah. at the front desk they're, they're and the so you know cool. yeah they're good people and they're so happy whoever's in charge of personnel is doing yeah. a good job yeah. yeah and these are just i mean these people are just awe-inspiring you have to yeah. be able to work here they're right incredible yeah yeah. Hey, I could talk to you forever, man, but we I've got this breath thing I want to do okay. at 5:30. Yeah, you should do that. Good. Uh, I Good. want to check that out. So, thank, love it. thanks so much for your time, no man. No problem. Thank you. Uh, I'm really it. really glad thanks, to have met you. Thank you. It's been great. All thank right. you for hanging out. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast and are financially able, go to patreon.com and search for tangentially speaking. You enter your credit card, tell them you want to give me a buck, five bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 200 bucks, and then they'll just automatically ding your credit card and you don't have to think about it again. Uh, if you don't have uh, the money to do that, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Tell your friends about the podcast, write a review on iTunes, or just enjoy the podcast. It doesn't matter. I want to thank Basin and Range for that intro music. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun. And you can check them out at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast, you can go to Reddit, where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast. Uh, I drop in and answer questions, post photos, uh, whatever. Pretty cool community there. Another forum where you can meet fellow listeners to this podcast is at t eight. No, sorry, tspeaking.boardhost.com. This has been set up by a listener to enable people to um, register and uh, their different states and countries so you can find people who live near you, get together, have a beer, smoke a bowl, eat some mushrooms, dance under the moonlight, however you celebrate these things. You'll find uh, like-minded spirits on that. It's Again, it's tspeaking.boardhost.com. Dot com. And uh, if you want to get some t-shirts, we have the Civilized to Death shirts, Sex at Dawn shirts, Tangentially Speaking shirts. They're all in my mom's garage. She will get them out to you in a jiffy. Julie, my mom, is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet. So you can find those on my website. That Chris Ryan, chrisryanphd.com, tangentiallyspeaking.com, whatever. You'll find them. Just look in the store there. If you want to buy some other t-shirts from the same manufacturer, that's Shore Design t 
t-shirts. They are fantastic. I know I say this is an ad-free podcast uh, and this could be construed as an ad, but Sure Design t-shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception. Bennett, who was the dude there, decided he was going to support the podcast. He sent me a bunch of shirts uh, at an extreme discount to uh, help us out. Since Bennett died, the people who took over SureDesignT-shirts.com have decided to continue giving us the same deal that Bennett gave us. So be sure to use the discount code CTD, as in civilized to death, when you order anything from them and you'll get 20%, 20% off your entire order. That's the discount code CTD. And that's at SureDesignTshirts.com. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at CarseyBlanton.com. She performed this little ditty, especially for us. Sounds like she was sitting in her garage. You can hear the birds chirping. The song is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to live now because you're going to die one day. This is for you guys, Bennett and Justin. Miss you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. I don't want to give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch, why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You want to shut it up, but give it a rest, you're going to die one day. go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground